0: good morning good afternoon good evening everyone and welcome back to dyslexia coffee talk this is going to be a great coffee talk because i've got the i've got the og parent advocates y'all i mean this is great we've got with us pat roberts and nancy blair of the aim academy and aim institute they they've been advocating for their children uh I don't want to say for a long time, but it, the advocacy that they did for their children drove them to create something pretty special out there. And I am so honored that they wanted to share their story with us today. So welcome ladies.
1: Thank you Ashley. Thank you.
0: Excited to be here. Um, I, I I, love that you're here with us today. Um, So I you know, can you start with sort of your your origin story. I mean, how you go from advocating for, for your girls. You told me that you met when your girls were six, and you you end up creating a school and go on to create the AIM Institute, which has a conference coming up as well. So I mean, this is a pretty dynamic path that you two have taken. How did how did this begin? Well, I
2: guess it it is just a funny what do I say? A group of circumstances that all came together. But initially, um, we met when our daughters were six. They were in first grade. And we always tell the story that it was back to school night. And Pat and I have two other children. And I was at my son's back to school night, which was the, the exact same night as my daughter's. And my husband came home from our daughter's back to school night and said, there's a new mother in the class. I think the two of you are really going to hit it off. <laughs> Never says a word that she is a, a little girl that could play with our little girl. But he said, I think you're really going to enjoy her. Little did I know that that was the start of all of our projects. And when I say projects, we started for years um, as two volunteers Um, Working in a lot of different scenarios, bringing um, conferences to the area, to the Philadelphia region, and trying to see what we could do to help children who learn differently. This idea of starting a school was not ever in our mind until we met Sally Smith, who was the founder of the Lab School of Washington. And so that was a longer later in our journey to say. But you know, we had done so many volunteer activities as parents that we learned from each one of those. And I had been trained in the Wilson program. I was, had, was like helping other teachers to... And so there were just so many different things that came together. And I will share, this is a second career for me. I was originally a nurse anesthetist. So again... I'll let Pat tell you her story of where we started, but the nurse anesthetist and the medical piece does have a really fascinating component to this. Well, it's, it is it uh, is
1: just one of those stories that is meant to be. So as Nancy said, we had been on our individual journeys. I'm an educator by training versus Nancy's medical background. Um, and meanwhile, we're on parallel paths. So uh, before we met, when our daughters were six, I was in education. Um, I had taught in a lab school at a university for a number of years, just had a really wonderful experience there. So I knew the research, I was doing teacher training, and then I went sideways and stayed in education, but in a corporate space. Mm-hmm. So I got to see different things. And then I, when I went back to the university to do student teaching, um, now this is way back in 2000, um, it was shocking to me that nothing had changed in education since I was mm-hmm. at the university and the lab school was the same. Mm-hmm. So when I went in, I did students teaching, supervising, and I could see all the children in rows. Everyone lockstep together on the same paragraph in the same um, in the same book. And I thought, I said, by then we had met. And I said to Nancy, they're just, I can see our daughter sitting there. They're just, you know, they're going not to be differentiated. And we didn't know as much. You know, I don't think the research was as prevalent. So uh, we did meet Sally Smith in about 2004. Hmm. And that really, she was the one that put the school in our minds as uh, two parents. And she said, I like you. I like you the way you think. One of you is sort of business slash uh, education. And Nancy is research and and really looking at how the brain works. And so she talked us into it is the simple way to put it. (laughs) So Um, we started, uh, we never got the school up in time for our daughters. I just want to put that out there. They had, they were older than we were accepting students at the time. So, uh, that was difficult for us in those early years. But in 2006, we launched with 24 students. Fast forward to today, AIM Academy has 404 students, um, that span all grades. So all the way through 12th grade. And we have, um, so, but we never, we knew that the people, the children, the parents who found AIM would be the lucky ones. So our whole goal with AIM was that it be a model school. And today we're, we have so many visitors that come because we, we did the hard work, like every single educator and administrator and researcher out there. We made sure that Um, We put all the research into practice. And Nancy reminds me all the time, the thing that really motivated us, in addition to Sally Smith talking us into it, um, what motivated us when we sat together at a IDA conference, International Dyslexia Association Conference back in, I think it was 2004 about. And we were sitting there and they... President Reed Lyon or the top researcher at NICHD said it takes 10 years to get research in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that that was it for us. We looked at each other saying, Oh my gosh, that means if a child is six, they have to wait till they're 16 that the research gets in the classroom. So we had a lot of motivating aspects of it. And um, you know, we just always Stay true to the research. We can talk a little bit about that too in our research advisory council. Um, And then from that sprung AIM Institute. So we've been doing teacher training from day one. Uh, Nancy is a Wilson trainer. Now we have three other Wilson trainers. We're also OG certified through the IDA. As you mentioned, with Orton-Gillingham and the certifications that IDA has really led the way in our industry for, and a lot of states are adopting them. So um, we're excited about that, you know, (laughs) and hopefully we can just tell some other stories as you kind of step through today.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about your teacher training. Can you expand on that? Because I know that... (sighs) You know, there's a lot of efforts out there. There's a lot of conversations about training teachers. And um, like my state, for example, requires teachers to take this training, the K-3 through three teachers. But at the same time, the teachers are not compensated for their time. And, you know, the hours are much longer than what the modules state that they are. So the module may say it's a six-hour module and it turns into an 18-hour module. And there's a lot of frustration around that. Because they're having to do it on their personal time as well, and they're you know, they're not being compensated for the effort and the energy that they're having to put into it. That's just one example, but there's there's a lot of conversation about teacher training. So can we can you expand on the teacher training that you're focusing on through your through your work?
2: Well, I think um, Ashley, when you talk about like we started out day one. Um, in 2006 doing teacher training and that was predominantly stand and deliver and so most of it at that time was Wilson training we also brought experts um, in the field uh, such as Nancy Mather Louisa Motes I'm mm-hmm. um, just trying to think Nancy Hennessy I mean all of these folks would come to AIM and so if people you know our staff would hear it And then if those from the outside community wanted to come in, or it was the summer, we'd have people come from everywhere. But it was that one day, or maybe two days. And then as you go through your teachers, when I say attrition, it's not attrition because they're leaving the field. Sometimes it's simply, you know, I'm moving to another area. My, you know, significant other got transferred. So when we kept on looking back, we wanted our teachers to be the top trained teachers. And so it wasn't just one program. It was the science of reading and really looking at what it took to have our teachers trained in every aspect of hollis Scarborough's reading rope. Mm-hmm. Uh, that rope to us is our Bible. It is the component of getting us to look at those lower light skills and the upper skills. And sadly, when we started in 2004, we assumed that if it said reading specialist or special ed on your resume, that you would be trained in these programs. And we sadly were surprised. And so this is no exaggeration. I would say for every 200 resumes in the beginning, maybe 10 would be what we needed. And the rest, we had to put the investment in Mm -hmm. to go. And then if they moved to another state or they decided to stay home with their children for a little while, you know, we lost that period of time. So lo and behold, we and then we started doing a lot of training in different school districts. We would do it for a week in the Mm -hmm. summer in June where you don't know what grade you're going to teach and you're exhausted from finishing the school year but you might have just come out of the local university and Mm -hmm. you didn't come out with this. So there's a two-pronged piece of it here. I think we have to get our teachers, because it's to no fault of their own, we have to get them trained at the pre-service level. It's not fair to the school districts. It's not fair to the teachers. So that's one aspect of it. But this is where I say my medical background comes into play. In medicine, you never assume that you know it all. You always assume that the research is going to keep on carrying you to find whether it's better medicines, whether it's different treatments, but that's your job in medicine to stay current with the research. But it really is our job in education as well. The students deserve that. In medicine, they give you so many hours for professional development or they build in Grand Rounds, where you talk about what you could have done differently with the patient and you get the expertise. So you would have thought we might have known that COVID was coming along because I say this simply because we put our um, professional development on a digital platform. One, so our teachers could do it when it was convenient for them, and number two, that you could do it at your pace because not everybody learns at the same pace, as you said. For somebody, it might take six hours. For someone else, it might be 18 because they want to really get that information. So I think it's really important for everyone, whether it's school districts, um, schools, etc., finding the time for the teachers to be able to take in all this information and finding time that they can meet to talk about how can we help them put this into the classroom. And we've seen that once our work begins
1: with teachers, they really understand what it is that needed to be done and maybe things they didn't learn in the pre-service world. Although we're really excited about a lot of the work we're doing with universities. Many of our states, including where we're sitting right now in Pennsylvania, they just start coming out with laws that the science of reading and structured literacy need to be taught uh, in, uh, high, in higher ed. And so now the universities are collaborating with different organizations or developing it themselves or investing in their own Uh, education to make sure everyone is up to speed. So we're really, as parents of two dyslexic daughters, we are really optimistic that we might eventually fill that pre-service pipeline and then ultimately the in-service. But there's a lot of work to be done. And um, I think what we see more often than frustration, I mean, we have thousands and thousands of teachers going through our online courses called Mm -hmm. AIM Pathways. Uh, We don't see frustration. We see aha moments. We see why didn't I learn that? Mm -hmm. Um, Why didn't anyone tell me? And then once they start seeing the impact on children, I actually have a theory, which maybe one day we'll be able to research, that if you see that children are learning and progressing, which currently our NAEP scores do not show us at 33% reading proficiently, but as even one percentage point, as you start seeing that climb as an educator, I can say it for myself as a teacher, then you start feeling the reward of that. And then you will invest more, maybe of your own time, but I don't disagree with Nancy. Where we see the most successful implementations would be maybe teachers are stipended. Maybe they are actually, since our courses can also confer graduate credit or CEUs, if you, some districts are opting to pay for graduate credit for their teachers, if they would like it. So, I think people are realizing they have to be creative and then, as Nancy said, beginning to add more time for those opportunities to come together, even if it's an hour at a time on a weekly basis, to begin to make their way through an AIM Pathways or any other training that they may be doing. And you can't stop with one course. Yeah. That's This is our frustration, right? Um, had the world stopped for our daughters at foundational literacy knowledge of the teachers, they would never have progressed. So, you need whether you select Wilson for those more deep dives for those students who do have dyslexia or Orton Gillingham, which our courses can get you that certificate through Siri and IDA. Um, you have to put the time in, right? Otherwise we're not gonna be able to help our students. So we see a lot of momentum. So we are super excited. We see all of the states that are adopting science of reading, big states, big districts. Um, We never thought we would see that day, but it's exciting. Now we have to support that movement as parents, We as AIM, and of course, other organizations, but it's exciting.
0: Definitely. So, and uh, apologies that my dog decided to bark. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, two days ago was National Read Across America Day. And on that day, the right to read film was released. And it was a very powerful testimony about what's happening in our schools across the country with with having a balanced literacy curriculum that is not working for children. There were some specific examples, um, Virginia Beach, Virginia was, was one clear one where the numbers are far superior in that district because they have shifted to structured literacy within that district versus uh, Oakland, uh, which is where Kareem Weaver mm-hmm. is, and he was a very predominant figure within the film, the, those numbers are, are abysmals, not even a good word. Um, with, with what you're doing, with how you're training teachers, um, what what encouragement are you giving to those teachers to try to take back to their districts? and? try to help drive the change that we need in our classrooms in order to save our children.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, we have a sort of a motto, you are going to have to partner for impact, right? Um, We've been very fortunate to have Kareem Weaver at AIM last year for the research symposium. And to your point, I mean, he brought a whole contingency of Oakland folks to AIM to see what it looks like when Mm -hmm. it's working, and then how do we really support the training? Um, And so here's an area where how did we partner for impact in Oakland? Well, there was funding through Mm -hmm. a funder, a philanthropic organization, and AIM, uh, and certainly Kareem's work as nonprofits were eligible Mm -hmm. for that funding and we were able to get teachers in Oakland um, the funded um material to begin the journey out there. And it's it's really exciting. I think that uh, you have to be resourceful. And whether you are wearing your parent hat as we were initially, like you said, I mean, really, we could have just said this is a terrible situation and done nothing. We were fortunate, the moons aligned. And we were able to do something, but, you know, you do have to lean into it. We would encourage teachers to learn as much as they can. Many, many organizations will give scholarships for this training. So there's just a lot of access um, that's going on now. Free webinars and free research symposium like ours. that will happen on March 13th. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll have... It's amazing. We'll have 3,200 people online, educators primarily from across the world, as well as all 50 states. So this is where take the time, as you said, make sure you access that movie and film. I mean, that'll get, you know, anyone feeling like, wow, we have to do something and then begin to educate yourself and, you know, be relentless for the kids in your classroom.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think on some of these pieces, I mean, I, I, I know there are so many teachers out there trying their hardest to do this on their own. And I have watched how one teacher can single-handedly keep taking this back to their school district and then spread it. But it takes time. It takes patience. Um, I, I'm a full believer in, in fact, what we're doing with Kareem and the Fulcrum group in Oakland is for leadership, um, pathways to literacy leadership. I do think that all principals need to know this material, not as in depth as the teacher does, but if they don't understand the science of reading, they're not going, they're going to need to support that teacher and say, you know what, I know this is a heavy lift. But thank you so much for doing it. But that's how you build this. And the other piece is build a community. I know that there were places um, that are hosting um, a streaming of the Right to Read. Um, I know the other night there was one, I think it was a William and Mary College in Virginia. And this is what we need. We need places to keep hosting this. Because sometimes we have teachers and we have a gentleman that works for us now at AIM. He was a principal at a local high school. And he talks about how basically he heard Emily Hanford. And he realized he wasn't teaching literacy correctly. And it was a real aha moment for him. I really encourage if any of you, I know there's um, webinars out there, Ernie Ortiz, that if anybody listens to how he took his 800 student elementary school and switched them from balanced literacy to a science of reading. And his teachers would come on a, like a rainy horrific night and drive an hour to hear something because they were so passionate like he was. But you have to build a community. You can't, you know, and
0: that takes
2: time and that's hard.
0: It is hard and it does definitely take time. And um, I think a lot of people can definitely testi- testify to the communities. The community is critical, um, but that is also just such a challenging piece as well. Um, I wanna switch gears for a second and ask you this question. So with what you were doing, you know, the inspiration that you had from your daughters and from the lab school out of DC, you could have just founded a school. Um, Why did you choose to consult with and partner directly with researchers as well? Well,
1: we learned a long time ago, the research doesn't stop, right? So as Nancy always brings it back to the analogy of medicine, right? If medicine stopped, iterating vaccines and iterating what we need to do for cancer and diabetes, that would not be what we would want. So we learned from the researchers. As soon as we began to engage them, first of all, they were so excited to engage with an organization that not only would take it into the classroom, but then would also disseminate the information to as many people as we could. So we are very proud um, to work directly with Haskins Lab at Yale University and, and affiliated also with UConn, um, Ken Pugh, Nicole Landy. they We actually have an EEG lab in our school where again, we get to understand things like they are talking about maybe the brain will show response to intervention before our children can actually convert that, if you will, into a paper and pencil response on an evaluation or assessment. Isn't that fascinating? And so what they're saying is maybe we give up on kids or give up on the process too early, but that it does take time. So that's one study. We're also working with the Florida Center for Reading Research. They are known for so many research areas. Um, The ones we are most excited working with them are things like vocabulary, background knowledge. What is the role of background knowledge? And so they came to AIM, studied what we call interactive humanities, and Mm -hmm. saw that for a whole period a day, for every grade we have basically, we're really immersing children and students into this rich background knowledge experience regardless of whether they can at the whether they come into us at grade level which they do not right we are a school for struggling readers and children who've already been identified as having dyslexia or another language based learning difference so we, that research, now we're working with Jason Yatman out at Stanford, some amazing new studies that they're looking for. So for us, um, just, it. first of all, it's exciting. Our teachers are super engaged. Imagine as an educator, being able to work side by side in the EEG lab or work side by side with the researchers you're reading about. Julie Washington has been in and really engaged our staff and our actually what we put online, engaged them in dialectal differences and how you respond to children with language and dialect differences. Elsa Cardinus Hagen, um, mm-hmm. with EL and English learners. So Linnea well, Airy. And Linnea, and Linnea Dr. Dr. yeah. That's, you know, and Hollis Scarborough. So I think that when you see the excitement of Mm -hmm. educators knowing that they're they're learning and growing side by side, and then we get to video these wonderful experts like Linnea, we just, our new courses and early childhood focus that she's doing with us. And then, then it all creates this wonderful sense that as medicine has, look, we're not done yet. We need to keep learning and pushing and understanding because not all children respond in the same way, sadly. Um, As Nancy, Nancy was my daughter's best tutor, right? How lucky was I? Um, And she'd say, wow, I have to keep going over and over this stuff with your daughter. But she did that. Right. So to know, well, I
2: say you learn from every student and I always said, Pat's daughter taught me so much and you can't go in thinking that every student is the same and how they respond to your instruction. And so the more that you know about the research, the more you know how to apply it, the more you can differentiate when you have that group in front of you, because not every student, and the researchers have taught us this right now, even as Pat was saying, the Florida Center for Reading Research, they're coming up, in two more weeks, they want to really work on a scope and sequence of vocabulary words that will be taught. AIM will be the first place that they will come for research. They will go look elsewhere. And so what they're going to do is hopefully this research is going to expand way past AIM's walls. But how great would it be if it's in every public school with a really strong researched and evidence-based Uh, scope and sequence for vocabulary words and what we should be teaching children based on their different grade levels. So this is what excites us. And quite frankly, it excites the teachers at AIM. So we said, our team is pretty amazing. Um, They all are lifelong learners there. They all get so excited on this. And, you know, they
0: they realize the impact that they're making. Mm -hmm. So I want to... I wanna back up for a second because I we talk about this a lot in our community and we've kind of said it, but we haven't explicitly said it. And I don't wanna lose the message because your school is for children with language-based learning disabilities, but that this research and structured literacy benefits all children and harms none. Correct. Um, so, where and with working with the researchers, you're definitely helping promote that message. And what I'm thinking about specifically is, um, you know, there's 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 been a lot of Twitter war wars, I can't, wow. Twitter wars <laughs> going on lately, especially since Sold a Story came out. You know, and I and Emily Hanford on a couple of weeks ago, and we we talked a little bit about that as well. You know, there there was some pushback saying that Solda Story was saying that structured literacy is entirely phonics, which of course she was not saying. And if you see her testimony in the right to read film, she she flat out says, you know, science of reading is not only phonics. And there's a lot expanded about the five pillars of reading, etc. But what I think is beautiful about the right to read film as well is because they not a single child in that film was dyslexic. <laughs> this was about literacy for all children. And um, I'm excited to see what y'all do with um, the, the group out of Florida on vocabulary because vocabulary and background knowledge is so critical. So can you talk about your your evolution from, because I think every dyslexic parent too kind of has to go on that journey, right? Mm-hmm. I think we all become literacy advocates, but we start as dyslexia advocates because that's where our pain is, right? Our, it's living and breathing in the inside of our house. And how did you take that step?
1: Well, um, we specifically located our school to be a partner, to the school district of Philadelphia and all the surrounding um, schools because we just believed from the beginning and we learned very quickly, as you're saying, and I'm so, so glad, Ashley, you're pointing that out. We learned from the researchers and the research that what we do with students with dyslexia is, as you said, what we should do with all children. And so I think that's really led us on this journey. So our earliest work in the school district, uh, we were fortunate to do some pilot work, stand and deliver training and coaching. And we learned so much. We learned that this is what children need. Yes, phonics, but beyond phonics. But we also learned in those early days how difficult it is to make change and you not only have to take us as parents on a journey, um, but you also have to take teachers on a journey. So it is because these, as some of these stories are sharing in education for all children, these are deep seated understandings and trainings that we've given our teachers. So um, absolutely, if we have a country where we have 33% of our children reading proficiently. And uh, we saw um, really horrible stats. Then if you slice it differently for our black and brown children and our impoverished children um, and our urban districts, it plummets to the 15 to 18% proficient in those categories. This is not a dyslexia challenge that we're having. Uh, We as parents, certainly that's near and dear to our hearts, as you said. And we have to make sure they're not forgotten, right? But if we don't give them the foundational skills, whether you start in kindergarten, hopefully by kindergarten or pre-K, like if you're not starting with the foundational skills, our kids don't have a chance, meaning our dyslexic children, but more specifically, all children. And so we have to start. And so that's why you're seeing so many K-3 initiatives in the States. They realize that where they're going to have the biggest um, return would be in the k three. But we're finding, because of course we go beyond that, we accept children all the way through 12th grade, we're starting to see a need, particularly in that intermediate grade level, middle school level, and certainly in high school, these are children that didn't necessarily get these foundational skills. And you can't just say, oh, well, I guess we missed you this round. You've got to get in there and that's where you have to keep working. Um, And you're right, Uh, the schools we work with, the lion's share of the teachers using our AIM pathways, our science of reading, structured literacy, pathways for writing, that has nothing to do specifically with working with children with dyslexia. So definitely, um, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up.
2: And I do, I like the way you said, how do we go through our journey? Because- right <laughs> initially when it's your child, you're fighting like crazy. you are fighting that battle and it's and I said in my journey one of the things that I learned was I started to surround myself with other parents who were like-minded in the sense that we're going to be positive when we're gonna try to find a solution and because on any given day, you could get down and you needed that other parent to help pull you back up. So as Pat and they say, we're like the forward scouts. We, Our girls are now 32. So it has been a long journey on that piece, but they have their masters. And like I say so many times, I wished I would have known like that this is the way it would be turned. My daughter actually teaches in a public school with struggling readers. And so to give back, and as she said, that's her gift, because she knows sometimes she was made to feel like it was her fault. And she wants to make sure that the students understand that if they don't, they're still not getting it. It's her responsibility with her instruction. But When you look at the number of students that even show up at her door she's the interventionist she said they're not all dyslexic but they had a myriad of different situations where they weren't taught structured literacy and that's and that's why i admire kareem so much because he looks at the whole big picture And when he came and talked last year at AIM, you could have heard a pin drop when he spoke. When he put those stats up on the board and and everybody in the room, and of course, I'm sure the 3,000 people who were online would have experienced the same thing, but it's all of our responsibilities. And you said something before, and I don't think we can say it enough. This is the biggest social justice um, peer, you know, of our time. And if we don't start to look, whether it's corporations, t- looking at this, you need literate employers. If you can't read or write, there are not many jobs you can hold. So it's our workforce development. It's our career and college readiness. Um, and people wonder, like, why are we so passionate? Because we've seen what would happen. If you didn't fight for your child, we see what, what could have happened if we weren't their advocates. I always say in medicine and education, you need advocate. you need an advocate to look out for you. Mm-hmm. And that's the piece that I think if we all keep on pushing this issue forward, and Ashley, I thank you so much for your podcast and getting this information out. We're honored to be in the same realm as at one time Louisa Motz and Emily Hanford, but how exciting that this is moving and keeps on pushing this issue forward because another, one of the things I always say is the power of all of us is so much better than the power of one of us.
0: Holy agree, wholly agree. Um, I had a lot of thoughts with that one. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you kind of how, if, if you run into this and I'm, and I'm sure that you do, um, in all of these Twitter wars that were happening, um, somebody made the statement that children learn in more than one way. And this was a statement basically disavowing structured literacy, thinking that structured literacy is you're going to do this, and then you're going to do this, and then you're going to do this, and then you're going to do this. And, do this. and I made the comment, I was, I just... <laughs> getting more and more bold on Twitter, (laughs) I just flat out said I went, anybody who says that structured literacy is, is one way to teach children does not understand structured literacy and what the science of reading essentially is. Because from my vantage point, what I typically say is the science of reading will set the teacher free, free to teach the child, to meet that child where they are because they're empowered with so much knowledge that they don't need all 30 children in the class to be at exactly the same place they're even empowered to differentiate across those 30 children now again it's it's not fair to have you know one child all the way on this end of the spectrum and, one, and you know the bulk of your children all the way on the other end of the spectrum that's a difficult thing for i think for any teacher but your children are never all going to be in the same place, they're not robots. So (laughs) how do you, I'm sure that you run into this and how with the teacher training that you do with the message that you're putting out there, how do y'all face that? Because you seem to have a very positive message as well. So how do you approach that? I guess I approach it
2: several different ways. Number one, we have to start and I don't even like to necessarily use this word, but I'm going to just say tier one. We have to start with tier one and that the curriculum and teacher knowledge has to be as solid as possible. Yes. Because I do believe, and you have to use the high quality instructional materials. If you put teacher, you can't do one without the other. You can't just have teacher knowledge and then be forcing the teacher to be using a balanced literacy or whole language approach. And you can't expect to put high quality instructional materials in place if the teacher can't look at that whole classroom with the lens that they all might be looking differently. And so there's no such thing as learning styles. That's a myth. We wanna make sure that everybody understands that, but each one of those children in that class might be learning it slightly different and some might need more review, which means like having an extra dose of it. And there will always be those children who have the diagnosis of a language-based learning difference that will need additional intervention, but, I do believe strongly that we could decrease the number of students going into the tier threes if we had stronger tier ones and tier twos. And then if you look at some of these school districts, it's the opposite should be a pyramid going up. But we have pyramids going down that like we only have such a small group that are proficient. And then we have the top group. Well, then you have to look at your curriculum and you have to look at those pieces. too often we would hear, oh, our um, our kids know how to read in kindergarten, first and second grade. And then in third grade, they take the state assessment and all of a sudden they can't read. No, they were struggling all along. But your assessment was one that was subjective, not objective. And that's a hard thing for teachers to... And we've seen this—that you know what we were doing with assessment for years. T- teachers were really excited; those kids were moving up the different levels or the and the different um, letters. But then, when you go and you do an oral reading fluency, which right now the research is supporting, is the closest we have. To comprehension, but I say all the time, our research could change. That might be different in five years or 10 years, but at the moment. So why aren't we doing benchmarking and looking where these kids are? Why aren't Mm -hmm. we doing screening to see if we get, and people say, oh, because then you'll pick up kids that have false positives. Well, it's not going to hurt them to get extra instruction. I promise you that. So I apologize for getting on my soapbox a bit, but this is where uh, we had one little girl who applied to our school, and I'll never forget this. She was going into fourth grade, and she was at a school that told her parents she just wasn't ready to read yet. And in fourth grade, she could not read the word the or dog or Mm -hmm. cat. And she is now in a master's program. It took us quite a while. But I finally looked at her father and I said, she won't ever be ready to read until we start doing systematic explicit instruction. And that was the whole component, the language. Too many of us forget about the language element of Hollis's um, reading rope. And then looking at the structured literacy component. But we have to be looking at syntax. We have to be looking at text structure, inferencing, all of the pieces that take, all of these things that make a skilled and fluent reader. And I can see that you're excited to see. But that's what we believe in.
0: I don't think anybody else can see me, but I literally like doing this over here. I know, I'm so excited. You said it, yay!
1: Yes. Well, as Nancy said, that reading rope is our guide. It's actually a guide for our parents. So certainly a guide for all our teachers. And it it's just, um, Hollis Scarborough did a great presentation about it, calling it, you know, the tale of the twisted metaphor, right? Um, but it really has helped people understand that it's not one thing that we do with children uh n- you know who are struggling you know not necessarily dyslexic but struggling And that's where you can really by using that as the guide posts you it's a little easier to talk about so where which of these threads were are frayed yeah one eight, (laughs) five of them, like, what are frayed here? And where are you going to put your attention? And again, there are eight threads. And of course, all the threads have, you know, Mm -hmm. sub threads. But I think that's what, that was such a service that Hollis Scarborough, it's a gift to all of us to make it easier to talk about. And if we would just keep referencing that a little bit more, I don't think you'd have so many discussions on Twitter as you alluded to. And that's our—that's what drives us, right? Which which of the strands keep talking about it?
0: I I interviewed Dr. Jan Hasbrook at one point, and I refer to this statement that she made a lot. And obviously I had her on to talk about fluency because I think fluency is one of those just vastly misunderstood elements. I think parents struggle understanding what fluency is, but I definitely think that in the education realm, there is no understanding of fluency pretty much at all. They think if you can comprehend, then, you know, why are we talking about fluency period? And, um, I wanted to bring her on because I wanted to have that broader discussion about fluency in order to help parents understand. She said something so powerful. She said fluency is, is a few things, but she went, we have to have fluency with, with each thread of that rope Yes. in order to have reading fluency when that rope has wound together. And if you have, missing fluency over here. You'll never have this wound together, fluent reading that this is what people think is fluency and not this aspect over here. And pointing that out, like you just did, just spoke to my heart. But Nancy, you said something too. (laughs) Pat's probably going to appreciate this from the corporate world. I never thought about it, but my business heart just absolutely exploded with joy when you pointed out that the pyramid is inverted because it's going down. There was an article more than 20 years ago in the Harvard Business Review about the inverted pyramid and why it was doomed to failure. And I had completely forgotten about that article until you just said that and typically what happens with the inverted pyramid too is there's there's like one person and that one person becomes a stopgap because everything's got to flow that way but with the inverted pyramid in education you're putting that burden on the child instead of inverting the pyramid in order to put the pressure on education and allow the child to flow through the right direction so Thank you for saying that.
1: <laughs> There's another great analogy with a pyramid, just coincidentally, and that's the implementation science um triangle, if you've ever seen that. And what I love about that, which is another sort of way to think about it, it's uh it's a you know, it's a right-sized triangle, but on the bottom, the foundation on which the triangle is sitting is leadership. Yeah. And Nancy spoke to that. If you don't have a leader, a, that believes, trust me, we've been there. We've done training where it's just not going to be supported. Um, And then another side of the triangle is, you know, just how you support the teachers, right? What is the professional development? How are you making time? What is the coaching That you're doing, and hopefully you're growing coaches from within or teacher leaders or centrally funded from districts um, coaches. And then the other side, which I think we people don't talk about at all. We sort of sometimes hit leadership. Everybody's right now focused on professional development coaching. Nobody talks about the enabling context, the other side of the triangle. What does that mean? And you alluded to it. Well, what is this? Is the schedule set up mm-hmm. to be to give children and teachers time to have this uh, work develop? And that, when I say that, I mean when we first started, we would go into places where they gave twenty minutes for um, a block of literacy or thirty minutes. And we're like, whoa! There was no writing. Mm-hmm. That is our next big battle cry. Yes. No writing um, because they didn't have time. Um, And so these enabling contexts are, What did you lay out your scheduling correctly? Um, How are you integrated through the day? It's not, hey, 90 minutes ELA and we never talk about it for the rest of the day. How are you integrating Literacy through the entire day, whether you're in science or social studies, are you using morphology? So, I think, you know, is there assessment? Are you giving time to do the assessments? And Nancy and I don't think you have to overdo assessment, but you do need to benchmark. And if determined, you do need to progress monitor. None of this, hey, at the end of the year, we've been there. As a parent, you get told, hey, not this year didn't go so well. No, I need to know every step of the way what the progress is and what you're doing. If you don't see progress being made, you have to adjust. So I think that triangle, uh, you know, we've had a lot of training at AIM in implementation science, and then we really bring that out for leadership training. It's all of those things, right? Um, So I'll just throw that in as another triangle.
2: And I think the other element, too, is getting that your building sharing the same language. And that is something that is so important. And if you have a leader that's modeling that language, how much easier it is that, believe me, we are well aware that there will still be some stragglers. We know that. But we are the big believers that success breeds success. Mm -hmm. So when you have teachers that start having students that are becoming readers and are showing success, people start going, oh, what are they doing over there? And so it's contagious, that excitement and that pride in watching what a student is doing. And then sometimes teachers say, "Oh, could I come in and watch your classroom?" Because so it you know it can start out slow with some, and you always have your early adopters, and early adopters we adore um, because they are the enthusiasm that drives through the entire implementation science project uh, process. But it's you know it's exciting for that piece of it, and so teachers that are early adopters. You know, they're the ones who are, we know of some schools in New York City. They are having, uh, instead of book clubs, they are having uh, Emily Hanford um, podcast clubs. They listen, and then they come together and they talk. How exciting. And so when we hear things like that, we're like, okay, the movement's starting. We're going. And that's what's exciting. And, you know, I will say, like, in New York City, how like I always say they're almost blessed to have a, um, what do you call it, a mayor who is dyslexic because he knows how hard it was to learn to read. It's a shame that we have to wait until we either have a relative or someone has struggled themselves because many of the people that we've met within the field, it's either one or the other. And that's what drives the passion. But this as Pat knows that we've been on this journey for a long time, this is the most optimistic we have been since we met when our girls were six.
0: And I yeah, and I definitely, yeah, I've only been doing this for seven years. And where we are today versus where we are, where we were seven years ago is a fairly dynamic difference. I also see the balanced literacy camp doubling down. You know, like we saw the law fail in New York. We saw the law fail in Michigan. Um, I think my home state is, you know, when, when the right laws get proposed in Texas, I think Texas is going to be a major, major battleground state when it comes to the debate between balanced literacy and the science of reading, just because Texas is so large and, Texas also has the Houston Independent School District, which is one of the largest school districts in the country as well. It's not quite as large as New York City's Independent School District, but it's, it's pretty close, you know? Um, I see this, I, I see them doubling down in this battle and I think that our work is definitely cut out for us on a go forward basis. But I I am loving the momentum that I'm seeing and more and more people definitely getting on on board of what structured literacy is, what the science of reading is. Um, One of the things that I've been trying to do is, uh, so I have a full-time career that has absolutely nothing to do with dyslexia or education. Um, And I work for an extremely large, corporation. Um, I am part as what I am passionate about is I try to get involved in look, corporations now have these things going on called employee resource groups or, uh, corporations may call them different things, but essentially they're just employee res- resource groups. And so you have, uh, typically you have cultural cul- culture. I can't get the word out. What is wrong with me? cultural based (laughs) initiatives in order to bring more awareness around and and asian culture latin culture things things like that um but one of the one of the things that warms my heart and this is where i get involved is corporations are starting to create neurodiverse employee resource groups and with the prior organization that i was with one of the things that i told them was i went and, and I've already said this in the new organization that I'm with, I'm going, do you have any idea how powerful it would be if the CEOs of these large organizations went to Congress and say, and explain that the pool of employees out there is dwindling because our literacy rates, are, our illiteracy rates are growing And so if American corporations want to keep recruiting American citizens to work for them, then literacy across the country has to be a core investment that we focus on. Um, I think it would be incredibly powerful for the CEOs of our corporations across this country to band together and make that kind of statement. But it's also, I think incumbent upon us you know, people like us to raise that awareness within those organizations in order to make them really see why that employee resource pool is is dwindling in the manner in which it is. But then again, corporations like mine tend to only recruit the top 1% out of universities. Those are typically the kids that never struggled reading <laughs> that learned naturally. Um, so I, I feel like there's this, there's an amazing opportunity within the corporate culture in order to raise this awareness and help help them achieve that awareness so that they can help us create that shift within American schools.
1: Yeah, well, you're reading our playbook for the <laughs> chapter. So, you know, I would love to focus on that next because we're undaunted, right? And I think some of it is just bringing corporations in so they understand the talent within our students. We, you know, we have students that are whizzes in robotics, the arts, entrepreneurship. They're incredible. But if you don't, if so, we have a whole focus on future ready students, future ready workforce um so if you ever have us back we'll we promise we'll bring some of our corporate partners um and universities that are very focused on that because you're absolutely right um we have to prepare the future Workforce so we're very involved in that so keep doing what you're doing because we're out there in our region doing the same thing
0: awesome and I'll reach out to you for that for that too maybe I can talking to coming, coming <laughs> to my neck of the woods. <laughs> We'd,
1: love to. We'd love to.
0: Well, I want to be very cognizant of your time. And um, we've been on for just over an hour and wanted to ask though, before, before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts or things that you want to put out there that we've not covered yet?
1: I guess the best I would say, and I'm sure Nancy has something a little different is that don't give up right we have this big sign it ain't never 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 give up and we don't right i mean cuz the kids are depending on us and when i say kids i mean all children so just don't give up it will happen it's happening just uh, stay with it and network as you, as nancy said build your build your people <laughs> around you well
2: and i i would a second that with what Pat said, I think when I I look at it, I look at it from two aspects is one the parents aspect, always keep believing in your child, never ever stop that, um, because you know what they're going to have their bumps, and they are going to have, and I always say you know to raise a child that learns differently is not for sissies, because you have to be the rock. You have to be able to pick yourself up even when their day has been. And you have to sit there in conferences when the teacher like basically says to you, you know, they're not going to read. And you have to just nicely look and say, actually, they will learn to read, but might not be here. Um, But that's a hard thing to do when everybody else is telling you, you know, we're doing everything we can. Like get your child tested, make sure that you know where your child's strengths are and highlight those because as Pat said, whether it's entrepreneurship, whether it's robotics, the arts, um, you know, some are brilliant, you know, mathematicians, but we have to like find out what they're really good at. Keep on focusing on that because you cannot just focus on what their areas of needs are. And then the other piece of it is for those of us who are out there fighting for structured literacy, and when I say structured literacy, I mean the whole realm of the science of reading, all the research that these incredible researchers have given their lives for, we have to look at it. Medicine would not ignore the research. So why should education And that would be my last final piece to say that like medicine changed. We stopped treating things the way we treated them 10, 15 years ago. If we were treating each cancer the same way, where would we be now? If we were treating diabetes, would we have so many more options for families? But we had to do the same thing. In education. We've got to keep moving on and not looking backwards.
0: Yeah. And I want to highlight my final thought. I want to highlight something that you said earlier, which is a subjective assessment versus an objective assessment. A lot of the times our children are dismissed from RTI or dyslexia-based programs based on subjective assessments of, oh, they've completed this program and they're still struggling. So I want to encourage parents that a mastery check is not the same thing as a diagnostic. And the diagnostics are what tell you where the child is and what's going on, where they're still struggling, all of those things. A mastery check is not going to tell you that. (laughs) So please, push for those diagnostics somehow, some way, whether it's through your protections under IDEA and doing the diagnostic via your public school, or if you have that privilege, that blessing in your life that you can afford private diagnostics, definitely take that route. Um, But don't take those mastery checks at face value. So thank you both so much for joining this. I like, I'm giddy over here. I'm so excited about this conversation. I'll hit on so many things. (laughs) Well,
2: we've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and thank you for what you're doing to get the message out. Thank Thank
1: you. you. And we did send over to you, Ashley, some great resources. I know you'll share that with folks. So these are all free resources and free seminars. So we hope everyone will just avail themselves of those.
0: Very much. So thank you both and everyone. Have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.